All right, so I always love that I, that I get to come talk to you guys. You know, I, I, I'm a teacher by profession. Uh, I started being, uh, you know, I, I, I've been a professor for nearly 20 years now. I moved into administration, so I don't get to talk to people. So I get to cram uh, 10 months worth of lectures into tonight. So here we go, right? Um, you know, I am very fortunate in, uh, in a couple of things. And, and one, of, one of the things that I'm very fortunate in is that uh, I get, in, in this room right now, are two of the most influential men in my life for all time. Two of them in this room right now. You know, we, a lot of people uh, may, or it's not you, Brack, sorry. Uh, so may, uh, I saw Brack raise his hand. <laughs> so, uh, they, they may uh, have, they, they may not know their father, may not know, uh, you know, may not have a good mentor, may not, uh, may not really get to, to sit and talk and have access to some great men of God. And I am so blessed because I get, I get two, two major men that are so impactful in my life that at this point, if there's anything that you don't like about me, it's probably their fault, you know? So just blame them. And, and I'm talking about, you know, uh, my biological father, Harold Bourgeois, right there. And, yeah, yes, right. And my spiritual father, Ron Hammonds, Pastor Ron. So. And when... When you're at that phase, you know, a few things have happened. Pastor Ron kind of touched on this. Uh, there has been an attack against the men in the kingdom of God recently, particularly my greatest mentors. You know, uh, over the past year and then more recently with you, uh, you know, 18 months ago, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer and was given about six months to live. And praise God, it's been 18 months, right? Praise God for that. Uh, yeah, that's right. And then a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Ron had a quadruple bypass, which I know we're acting like it's not a big deal, but, but it's a big deal. <laughs> you know, it, it, was, it was probably more scary for people like me than it was for even him because, you know, if everything goes, uh, in my opinion, if everything goes very terribly, he gets to be with Jesus. <laughs> but I get to be without him. And those those moments, you look and you take stock and you look at your life and all the questions that every man asks get asked all at once. Do I have what it takes to be a good father, to be a good husband, to be a good brother, a good mentor, a good leader, a good pastor without you, with your hand on my back, with your encouraging words, one text away, one phone call away, one dinner away, do I have what it takes? These are the things that are running through my mind during these moments. Now, I'm, I'm really blessed that I get these two guys, uh, and not every... I see why you do this, Ron. <laughs> and so... Uh, Pastor Ron is always adjusting his uh, pulpit, and I, I get it now. Like, and so. Uh, so I see why 
you know, these questions are important to ask, and these questions are important to ask in terms of Christian masculinity. Now, I know that term is kind of fallen out of fashion, masculinity, uh, even um, politically incorrect to even say those words. But Christian masculinity, which is what I would define as real masculinity, Christian masculinity cannot be learned. It cannot be earned. You can't read about it in a book. Now, you can read about it in the, in the Word of God, but it can only be bestowed. It can only be passed down from a father to his son. That is the only way to receive it. That is the only way. Now, I am not saying that if you are without a mentor, if you are without a father figure in your life, that you cannot go to the Word of God and read about being fathered by God, and you can't get that. But what I'm saying is when you are doing that, there is more going on than just the mere words off the page, the mere principles that you are memorizing. God is actually fathering you. And the only way to be able to take up this mantle is to be fathered. This has to be bestowed. And when you look at uh, crime statistics, when you look across the nation, and when you, there is one common denominator between the, the rising crime in cities, and it is not gun control, I promise you that. There, there is one, yeah, that might be a part of it. That might be a part of it. But there is one common denominator. Do you want, you want to guess what that common denominator is? Fatherlessness. This guy knows. It's, it is fatherlessness. Let's, uh, 85% of all youths sitting in prison right now are fatherless. They grew up in a fatherless home. 90% of all homeless and runaway children, fatherless. 75% of adolescent patients in a chemical abuse center, 75% come from a fatherless home. 71% of all high school dropouts, no father. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions, fatherless homes. 72% of adolescents serving sentences for murder, murder, fatherless homes. Children from fatherless homes are 4.6 times more likely to commit suicide. 5.1 times more likely to live in poverty. Six times more likely to be in a state-operated institution of some kind. Six and a half times more likely to drop out of school. Ten times more likely to commit a sex crime. Fifteen times more likely to have behavioral or mental disorders. Fifteen and a half times more likely to end up in prison while still a teenager. Twenty-four times more likely to run away. Thirty-three times more likely to be seriously abused. 73 times more likely to die before they get 20 years old. 73 times more likely. These are just some of the statistics that we see. Pastor Ron mentioned it. Uh, the statistics are catching up to what we as Christians already know, right? We know these things. Fatherlessness is a problem. It is a problem. Uh, and and when, when we're considering this, I want, I want to kind of take on a real quick journey because I don't get to talk for very long, and even though I'm going to cram 
a whole semester worth of lectures all in one night. We're going we're gonna to do it. I want to consider this journey. Okay, and this is applicable to all of us. Now, I am really talking to the men I'm talking about being fathered. I'm going to talk about being fathered physically, being fathered on this earth, but I'm really talking about allowing yourself to be fathered by God. That's really what I'm going to talk about tonight. And there are stages. I want, I want you guys to remember these stages, okay? The first stage, and, and all of these stages tend to be chronological, but they are not necessarily chronological, meaning you can exist in more than one stage at a time, but it does kind of have an order to it. Okay, you ready? The first stage, the beloved son. Okay, as a boy, there was only fun and adventure. I knew, I never doubted in my life that my parents loved me. Never. I mean, Sometimes I might say it like when I was in trouble or something like that, but there was, there was really no doubt that I, I ever, my mom was looking at me because I used to tell her that you don't love me, you're spanking me. And so I knew she was judging me right then for saying that. And so, but I never doubted that I was loved. Being loved unconditionally as a beloved son, as a son of the house, as a name bearer of your father, there is nothing like it. It creates a confidence in you that allows you to take more risks, allows you to do more things, it allows you to be more free than, uh, than people who don't get to experience that. So being the beloved son gives you that encouragement, gives you that, uh, you know, it, it, when you are the apple of your father's eye, you're beloved and you can do no wrong in your father's eye. There is always forgiveness. It shows you that your performance has nothing to do with how much you're loved. If you fail at something, it doesn't change the amount of love that your father has for you, right? This allows young men to be able to take more risks. It allows them to grow up knowing that no matter what happens, my father has my back, right? David is such a good picture of, of these stages, by the way. A lot of this comes from the life of David. David grew up, and he never doubted the love of his father. It's one of the reasons why he was so confident all the time, okay? Uh, the next stage that it comes to, so we got the beloved son. Y'all got that? And I'm going fast here because, you know, it's a semester-long class, and here, here we go. So the beloved son. The next stage, the cowboy. This could also be called the shepherd stage because when, uh, when you're looking at the life of David, this was when he was a shepherd. This is the stage of your life that you get to experience adventure for the first time that you have a little bit more freedom and you still don't have a lot of responsibility where you can go all day. And for me, it was, you know, leave, leave the house. As long as my parents knew where I was, come home before the streetlights are on, right? You know, that, that's it. It's, it's adventure. We would go to the lake and I would be gone in a boat all day by myself. You know, it was adventure. I got to experience those things. Now, I knew back to the beloved son, if I got in trouble, who would be there to rescue me? My father. Never a doubt in my mind. So I could do crazy things. Now, this is the stage that mothers don't understand, right? This is that stage because it is full of unnecessary danger, right? It is, uh, it is conversations like this. 
mom, 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 mom. We were doing this experiment to see how many stairs we could jump off of before we got hurt. For a dad, this conversation goes, well, how many did you get up to, son? <laughs> 13. <laughs> when did you get hurt? 12. <laughs> you know? So that's how that conversation goes with a dad. All right, so you learned something then. Yeah. Yes, sir. You know, with a mom, it is, what the heck are you doing? Why are you jumping off the stairs for no reason? You know, that's, this is an incongruous stage for moms. But for boys, it is so important. This is the stage where David fought the lion. This is the stage where he built skills, where he tested his strength to see what he could and couldn't do. This is a very important stage for the development of a boy, for being fathered, knowing that I can do this, and no matter what happens, my daddy's got my back, right? That is this stage. That's what they're going through. This is the, the cowboy stage. Now, there are some... Uh, negative aspects of this stage, and they're pretty obvious. What happens when a man never leaves this stage? <laughs> you know, have you ever heard of the, it's a, it's a clinical term called Peter Pan syndrome, and, and it's where a, a guy never wants to really grow up, and he always just lives from adventure to adventure. He never commits to a woman. He has no ability to commit to a job. He just goes from job to job to job, not because he's a bad worker, but because he he can't imagine himself planting roots. You know, he can't imagine himself being tied down. So there are, there are pitfalls to this stage. It's not meant to be a permanent stage, by the way, jumping off of the stairs. I don't do that anymore, you know. So, uh, but that is, so there are some pitfalls to it, but this stage grows you into the next stage. The next stage is the warrior, okay? So we've got the beloved son. We've got the cowboy. Or, or the shepherd, whichever one you want to call that, and then the warrior. The warrior stage is when, for the first time in your life, it falls on you to fight. Not pretend fight anymore, a real fight. Look at the life of David. When David had to fight for the first time, he was entering into this stage. Now, it was those other two stages that prepped him for it. What did he say to Saul when Saul said, you? You think you can beat Goliath? What did he say? He said, well, you should have seen me when I was a cowboy. That's what he said. And he said, you should have seen what I did with the lion. You should have seen how I protected my sheep. It were those previous stages under the direction of a father being fathered that prepared David to take that next step into a warrior. This is when a man comes into his power, when he starts to become the man of God that God destined him to be. Whether it is standing in the gap for someone else, but you are, or standing in the gap for a cause, whether it is fighting for your family, men will never leave this stage. We'll add things to it. We may not fight as many battles as we get older, but we will always be ready to fight because that's what the kingdom of God needs. And I know, I know that's really out of fashion. It's really, you know, not popular, you know, because, uh, you know, we allow God to fight our battles for us. You know, uh, we, uh, we don't really condone violence here. Well, sometimes, sometimes that's what needs to happen. 
I'm not saying physical violence. I'm just metaphorical. I'm not, you know. Sometimes we need those warriors. Uh, the next is probably the one that's going to be the most uncomfortable for you to hear. Okay? This is, this is the one where lyrics get changed in songs. We don't like reading from this particular book of the Bible because it's so uncomfortable from the pulpit, but it is a very important stage for a man to go through. You ready? When I say it, you're going to be like, mm. you're going to make a weird face. Ready? The lover stage. See? <laughs> the, the lover stage. Now, of course, yes, I do mean like the love you have for your wife, the love you have for your spouse. But that is less important than the love relationship you make with God. Okay? This was very critical in David's life as well. The majority of the Psalms he wrote were about being in love with God, were about that relationship that he had with God. They were about realizing and coming to the conclusion that uh, this is better. What I have with you is more important. The lover stage is, is really big. There was a hymn written by Charles Wesley, and it was called Jesus, Lover of My Soul. And it was so uncomfortable for men to sing at church that they changed the lyrics. Like the Methodist church was like, whoa, this is way too far out there for us. You know, Charles Wesley was the founder, was one of the founders of the Methodist church. And they changed it to Jesus, Savior of my soul, Jesus, refuge of my soul, things like that. But he wrote Jesus, lover of my soul. I always, I always find that so funny. Guys are really uh, intimidated by that word when you're referring to being in love with God. And so uh, loving God changes the way that we do things as a man. Uh, the difference in a man as a lover and a man as a consumer, being in love with God. Here's, here's what I mean by that. When I am and understand my relationship with God and am truly in love with God, I approach my wife differently. The natural state of guys, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, the natural state of guys is to be a consumer in a romantic relationship. Uh, the world would teach you this. Uh, when I counsel young men, uh, this is what I say to them. Okay? The world would tell you that the greatest thing that you can ever get from a woman, that the most important thing that you can ever get from a woman is her body. That is what the world would teach you. They would give you a high five and say, congratulations, good job, buddy. But that is not true. The greatest thing that you can ever get from a woman, your spouse, is her heart. That's the greatest thing you can ever get from her. Because if you have her heart, you get everything else. And you never have to make a sandwich. You know what I'm saying? So, like, it, you, get, you get it all. And so that, that's what you should be after is if you take care of her heart, you'll get everything else. That's the greatest thing. Get, maintain, keep, put that first, and that will change you from a consumer to a giver in your relationship with your spouse. All right, so we've got, I'm moving fast, guys. We've got the beloved son. We've got the cowboy. We've got the warrior. We've got the lover. And now we have the king. This is the stage of your life where 
you as a man, you are moving and you are in charge of things, whether it be at work, at church, you're the head of your house, you have a little money, you have some power. All these other stages set up what you do in this stage, whether you will be a good king or a bad king. For some men, this is known as a midlife crisis. <laughs> right here. It is what you do with your money and your time when there's no one else to tell you what to do with it. One of the biggest things that uh, struck me the first time I came here, which was I was about 19 years old the first time I came here. We weren't in this building. We were in the other building down the road. And Pastor Ron said this. He said, this church is not a cruise ship. You guys that have been here very long, you know what the next, what is it, babe? It's a fishing vessel. Meaning, we're not here to kind of coast through life and buy really expensive sound equipment and make a really big production, make everybody feel good for coming to church. We are here to make an impact in the kingdom of God. Right? Uh, quick story. Um, during the, the Crusades, when the English took Jerusalem back, okay, so they were in charge of Jerusalem for this brief period of time in history. Uh, one of the men was in charge of protecting the road because the king of Jerusalem at that time said something to the effect of all should enter, be able to enter into Jerusalem, not because it's easy, but because it's right, meaning if an Arab wanted to come to Jerusalem, they could come in. If a Christian wanted to go into Jerusalem, they could come in. There should be no walls or doors or gates, but it still needs protected. This man that was in charge of that protection had, a, had an estate outside of Jerusalem, and it was not great. It was not well maintained. His son came in, and he started maintaining it. When, when he died, his son took over, and his son started digging wells, started uh, making, you know, making, bringing things to life. He wanted it to be a oasis in the desert because that's where it was. And when he was seen by the royalty in Jerusalem, when they came to visit him, this is what they said to him. Are you crazy? I'm paraphrasing. Uh, are you crazy? Would you have this be as great as Jerusalem? And I love that line so much. Because what that man did with his money and his time was making a kingdom of God right where he was to be a refuge for others, to be a kingdom of God. With his money, he spent it. With his time, he spent on building and making his world just like Jerusalem so that people could come there and be fed. People could come there and have water, could be cleaned, could, be, could hang out, have a place to stay on their road to Jerusalem. Could there be a better way to spend your money? That is always what struck me when Pastor Ron said that about we are a fishing vessel. Every bit of the money, you know, look, we don't even have carpet in here, you know, like because we have missionaries all over the world. That's where we spend our money. That's what we do because souls are more important. Amen? Amen. So, the king. Who David was really affected how he treated people as a king. And he always, uh, real quickly, Psalm 27, verse 3 through 4. 
I didn't put that in the notes, so I'm just going to read it. So, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. These are all these things from those stages. War, he's confident, he doesn't fear. Right after it. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In this passage, David was facing an enemy. He came to God as a beloved son. He was confident in God. He asked to stay and dwell in the house of God, and he knew that God would be able to grant that request, and he could be confident in those things. All right, so last stage. We've got the beloved son, the cowboy, the warrior, the lover, the king, and now the sage, the wise man. This is perhaps the least powerful physically, but the most powerful spiritually. This guy has years to draw from. By this point in his life, he has people that listen to him, whether it be in a church service or whether it be in, you know, uh, just Bible study or whatever he's got. This is that last stage. Now, you can exist in multiple stages, like I've said. You know, you can be a warrior and a king and a sage and have people listen to you. Uh, But one word from a sage can change the whole conversation. Because that confidence that that man brings from years of knowing God, from years of toil, from years of being a warrior, from years of being a king, can change what you think about a situation, can change your outlook on things. It can encourage you. It can build you up in ways that no other words can. That is why this stage is so powerful. All right, so in conclusion, I've got to go super fast. I've got a bunch of principles. I started writing these down, and I realized very quickly that this was probably more of a book than it was a sermon, hence the whole, I'm going to cram a semester worth of stuff all in one night. And so maybe one day it will be, but I call it uh, the things my father's taught me. And it's just quick points. Um, Some of these come directly from quotes from my father's, these two men. Some of it are things that they taught me that I've put into my own words, But here we go. Number one, principle before problem. It's Pastoranism right there. This is, the concept behind this is that it is easy to know what to do when there's no crisis, right? But when there is crisis, it gets a little harder to figure out the right way to go and the right thing to do. That's why we learn these principles and put things in place to keep us on track to where when we do get punched in the face, the right way to go doesn't seem so mysterious. Principle before problem. God is a God of process. This is the next one. God is a God of process. Um, This day and age, you can buy your leather jackets and your blue jeans already distressed. You know, isn't that cool? It can look worn out before you even take it off of the rack. But uh, if you want an oak tree, you got to start with a seed. If you want a man, you start with a boy and you raise him upright. Number three, there is a difference in service to God and intimacy with God. Sometimes we lose sight of why we're doing the things that we do because we lose that relationship with God, and the relationship with God is the most important thing, your relationship with God. The next one, it is easier for someone to pull you down than it is for you to pull them up. My dad taught me this so long ago, and I have applied it to so many areas of my life. It goes like this. Luke, 
if you're standing up on a table, that's what he would always say, and your buddies are down there. Now, he was talking about peer pressure like when I was eight years old and during the Reagan administration and just say no. That's what we were talking about here. And so that's how old I am, by the way. Reagan was president. So uh, he, he would say, if you were going to reach down, what is more likely if you were to clasp hands? For him to pull you down or you to pull him up? And then he would demonstrate for me, and he would always pull me down off the table. He would catch me. I was never injured. And so, but it was a great illustration. It is always easier to be pulled down than to pull somebody else up. It is the same with anything else in your life, son. If you're ever in a situation where it is unequal like that, the more likely scenario is that you are going to be pulled down. So you need to make sure that you are either really, really strong or that you got a buddy pulling with you. I have used that in so many different scenarios. Obviously, peer pressure was one of them, but I use that now in boardrooms. I use that to change cultures at the companies that I work for. You don't change culture at your company by talking to everybody all at once. You talk to them one at a time. And then once you get that person on board with you, then you both go and talk to the next person. You know, it, that is a very powerful lesson that I learned from my father. Next one, we do not serve a tame God. Uh, in order to understand God, we attempt to sometimes define him by our experiences, but there is something about him that is forever wild. Yes, he is kind. Yes, he loves us, but he is not tame. Uh, one of my favorite uh, ways to put this was C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, he, he was talking uh, about the great lion. He said, oh, I thought that was a man. I didn't realize it was a lion. Is he quite safe? Safe? Who said anything about safe? He is good. And he is king. But he is not safe. I love that. So, you cannot be a good man without being a dangerous one. Being harmless because you're weak is not a virtue. It's just weakness. However, having the capacity for violence and putting it under the control of God is one of the highest forms of masculinity. Passivity is not manly at all. Next one, engage with your problems. There are some issues that can only be solved if you engage with them. There, the grass will not get shorter. The hedges will not get trimmed if you're not the one to go do them. The temptation for men is to ignore things until they go away. They will never go away. <laughs> They'll only get worse. This could be your finances, your relationship with your kids, your parents, or your spouse. Only you can fix it. Last one. I've got a bunch more. There's a thousand of these, by the way, but I've got a bunch more. Last one that I'm going to do tonight. Your enemy's primary strategy is to keep you off the battlefield. He's going to do that by convincing you, number one, that there is no battle that there's nothing wrong. Everything's great. Because the warrior in you has all the skills and the tools that were at Jesus' disposal. And if you rise up, he didn't, he didn't want that. Your enemy does not want you to rise up. He wants you to think that there's nothing wrong. He wants you to think that everything's good. In fact, he will make sure that your life might go well just to keep you from thinking that anything is wrong. And then, it, when you do rise up, he'll stop attacking you, and he will go for people around you, okay? If your enemy cannot defeat you, he will defeat the person whose defeat can defeat you. 
It's Pastor Ron at something. I love it. Meaning, if he can't get to me, he'll go after her, my wife. He'll go after my kids. Because if they go down, I'll go down. It's hard being that warrior and standing in that gap and standing for all of those people. But that's what God's called us to do. 